Support for this podcast comes from you. And Biogen, committed to transforming the treatment of neurological disease. Biogen is working to develop life-changing therapies for people with multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, ALS, and spinal muscular atrophy. Biogen.com science. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you live in, or even if you live near a city, you know that mayors have spent the last couple of decades trying to make their downtown safer and more livable. Parts of them have become innovation zones. There are now new parks. There's new public art. All sorts of people have moved downtown. You've got young singles and empty nesters. And in a lot of cities, that creative energy has had incredible results, except there's a price to success. And in this case, the price, to quote a former candidate for mayor in New York, is that the rent is too damn high. Alan Ehrenholt has spent decades studying American cities, and he's watched this recent reinvention very carefully. He's a senior editor at Governing Magazine and the author of The Great Inversion and the Future of the American City, among other books. Alan, good to have you back on the show. Nice to be here. Thank you. So... Many big cities in the U.S. have seen, I think it's fair to say, a surge in housing prices over the last few years. I wonder why there is such an increased demand for city living. Well, and there, there are theories. There, there's, there's no conclusive evidence, but there is the theory that today's young people, today's millennials, spend so much time on suburban sofas watching TV that they got bored with suburbia altogether and <laughs> they watched uh, Sex in the City and Friends and Seinfeld and Urban Life took on an appeal for them uh, that it hadn't had before. That's one idea. Mm-hmm. Another one, which, which I'm a little more partial to, is that the more we communicate technologically uh, with social media and cell phones, the, the more starved we become for some real physical human contact. And so we have a generation that not only wants to spend a lot of time on the phone and on Twitter, but also wants to see people and get to know them. And that, that's, that's a combination that can be achieved with city life. And I think that that does play a role. So it sounds like we're seeing a combination of rich people move into cities. And you can see that just by looking at the prices in a lot of cities of, of, you know, these multi-million dollar condos that are being built. And young people. I mean, there may be some overlap, but it sounds like a lot of people in their 20s and 30s also want to live in cities. Well, and uh, there you have to make distinctions among cities. It's true that if, if the city you want to live in is Boston or Seattle or San Francisco or New York, it isn't enough to be young. You also have to have quite a bit of money. Yep. But it's worth pointing out, and it isn't talked about enough, that there's a whole second tier of cities, the places like Cincinnati and Indianapolis and Louisville. Right. And I could name a whole bunch more where downtowns are coming back, central cities are coming back, and they're still quite affordable. I mean, if you are a young person in your mid-20s and you've got a decent job and you want to live in the center of Louisville, you can do that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be rich. So it's a mistake to assume that's what's happening in San Francisco and Boston is happening everywhere in the country. Right. But it is interesting, as you say, that you do see it right across the board. I mean, I visited Des Moines and Portland, Oregon, and you do see construction all over the place, maybe old industrial buildings being turned into sort of condos with a kind of urban brick feel, but, but, you know, with the newest appliances. So you you do see it in, in many, many different kinds of markets. 
Right, and and uh, Des Moines is not a place where young people are priced out of the market yet. Right. And it's not since it's not a global city, and it isn't going to be. It's not clear that that's going to happen, if ever, uh, for a long time. Uh, I, I would also point out that the uh, critics of all this will say, you take a survey of millennials, and well under half of them really want to live in the center of a city, and uh, when their kids start getting a little older, they're going to move to the suburbs. It's important to note an answer to that, that the millennial generation is so huge that even if we're talking about 25% of them, 20% of them, that's enough to remake the face of uh, American cities all over the country. Now, I want to ask you for a second about that top tier of cities, you know, the New Yorks, the the San Franciscos. I mean, I'm, you know, here in Boston, I've, I've heard people say in L.A. That, that buyers, very wealthy buyers from other countries will show up almost with suitcases of cash and pay for very expensive homes and condos, essentially in all cash. I wonder how much interest there is that maybe didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago from foreign buyers in uh, cities. Well, uh, there again, you've got to make the distinction. High-rise buildings are going up in Manhattan, and condos are being sold at incredibly high prices in the uh, multi-millions of dollars. And uh, that's really not a good thing. Uh, I mean, I, I think that you want a place like Manhattan to be uh, affordable, at least to the upper middle class of locals. Yeah. Even the wealthy start getting priced out at that point. Only the very, very wealthy can afford Absolutely. anything. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what you might call hypergentrification. And it applies to Manhattan. It applies to San Francisco, to a lesser extent in places like Boston or Seattle. It doesn't apply all over the country. Wealthy investors from Hong Kong are not buying in downtown Cincinnati right now. Mm-hmm. Now, cities support all sorts of jobs, right? I mean, not just CEOs, not just people who are sort of captains of industry kind of thing. There's lots of restaurants in cities. There's lots of cafes. There's lots of boutiques. um, And people work in those places. And there's lots of hotels. What happens to all the people who work in hotels and restaurants. And this is true maybe in a a very exaggerated way when you look at uh, New York and San Francisco and stuff, where do those people live? But even in cities that are less pricey, it can be still hard for people who work in those jobs that support that city, the the things people love about that city, to find a place to live. Well, I, I think the answer in a lot of places is that there are working class suburbs, inner suburbs built and developed in the 1950s that are now becoming residences for the people who work at entry-level or slightly above entry-level jobs in the center of the city. So the short answer is they're moving to suburbia, and it's not uh, the leafy suburbia that we might think of. Uh, We're talking about fairly gritty inner suburbs, and I think if you look around Boston at at the Brocktons and at that kind of place, you'll see the towns where the workforce of of the uh, affluent central city is is uh, having to live in. Hmm. No, I mean I do see here and elsewhere there are major pushes by mayors all around the country to put in more affordable housing to make sure that cities do not become places where only the wealthy, only the very wealthy can live. Where a family could actually live that was sort of middle class. It, are, are those pushes 
you know, is that mostly a publicity thing? Is that really going to have any effect on cities? Well, we're really at the at the early stages of that. I know it's not just publicity, but it's a very difficult problem as as cities are learning. It's possible to pass an ordinance stating that if you want to build in 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 a, in the city, you've got to make your development 25% uh, affordable housing, as San Francisco did by referendum in June. But you have to be careful because if you make that requirement high enough, the developers just won't build anything. Mm-hmm. So there's no point in saying uh, it'll, it's got to be 50% affordable because nothing will get uh, built in that community. Also, most of the affordable housing laws that have been on the books up to now say that the developer can either uh, build the requisite number of affordable units or pay a fee uh, to the city. And what they're doing almost in every case is paying the fee rather than huh. uh, rather than doing the building. So you get affordable housing funds that are uh, getting quite uh, swollen with cash, uh, but not much is not much is getting built. Now, that can probably be adjusted in a way that would produce some more housing. There's also the theory, which I think has some validity, that the answer to the problem of affordable housing is just more housing of all kinds, including market rate. The greater the supply becomes, the more you have a, I hate to use the word, but a trickle-down effect. So eventually more units at the lower ends of the spectrum will be, will become available. So I, I think that the best answer is just build more. I'm Kara Miller talking to Alan Ehrenholt, a senior editor at Governing Magazine. You've written that one side effect of residential housing prices going up in the middle of cities is uh, that commercial uh, real estate also tends to go up, which means that some of what lured people to the cities in the first place, which is, you know, small boutiques, sort of mom and pop businesses, not, not the kind of shops that you can find at any old mall in the suburbs, those businesses themselves are being squeezed out. What do you see happening in terms of uh, commercial real estate? Well, that is happening. But I think you can do something about that. And uh, the New York City Council has debated this, and uh, uh, largely because of the influence of of the real estate industry has, has not passed anything, even though it's been on the table for years. But you can restrict what landlords do when a lease expires. You can give commercial tenants a right to negotiate a lease at a reasonable increase over what they were paying before. That can be done. That's not as difficult as the residential problem. That really is a question of political will. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it is a shame to see neighborhoods that have revived and are full of restaurants and full of life lose their independently owned businesses. But but that's a solvable problem. The top tier cities need to work on that. Now, give me a sense of what's happening to urban schools as wealthier, younger people move into cities Um, because urban schools have long uh, struggled to keep up with their suburban counterparts. Does this mean that urban folks are going to start sending their kids to the public schools? Are they going to say, you know what, we have so much money, I'm sending this kid to private school? Well, some people will will say that, but the number of people with enough money to afford a place in the center of a city and private schools is is still a limited number of people. I think that we're already seeing at the lower levels, uh, kindergarten and the elementary grades, we're definitely seeing the effects of uh, affluent gentrifiers putting their kids in the public schools. And then, of course, you have some charter schools and other ways in which those people can uh, satisfy their, their family's educational needs. 
when is that going to reach high school so that we see the people who move into cities uh, sticking with the public schools all the way through? I think that's a ways off yet. But uh, we're seeing it in the lower grades, and we're seeing, we're seeing schools improve in those grades. You know, you have people running for office saying all over the country, it's very a familiar refrain, that uh, we won't really be able to save our city until the schools improve. We have to improve the schools, and then uh, the middle class will live in the city. But that almost that, that has it almost backwards. Schools improve after people move back to the city. They mm. they are not they are not the reason that they are they are the uh, the end of the process and not the beginning. But I think we're starting to see it happen. So it sounds like in ten or twenty years, the kind of image people have of urban schools now might be a completely different image. I mean, and and maybe even flipped a little bit with suburban schools. Well, certainly the, uh, we're seeing uh, the effects of working class and poorer people uh, moving to the suburbs. We're seeing the effect that that is having on suburban schools. Suburban schools are now remarkably diverse, multinational, multilingual. Yeah. Um, all the things that we used to say about uh, central city right, schools right. are now much more true of uh, particularly inner suburban, but even uh, further out suburban schools. Uh, the, the, that is where you see great diversity. Is there a value, and I wonder if we're losing it, but is there a value to socioeconomic diversity inside of cities? Well, there's some value. I, I don't think it's the only value to pursue. The truth is that economic classes have always separated themselves uh, in, in any in any city that we uh, that we know about the the, uh, the closest thing to uh, economic diversity existed in black neighborhoods prior to the 1960s because they people no matter how much money they had couldn't live anywhere else right. and you had doctors living next to janitors and all all sorts of um, examples of diversity within the black community but that wasn't in general a good thing that that was forced by segregation mm-hmm. so I I think we're uh, somewhat unrealistic in. The idea that uh, economic segregation is is a fleeting phenomenon that we are going to be able to to do away with. I think it's uh, it's part of uh, urban civilization. Does it worry you what's happening to cities, or do you think you know this is just sort of another chapter in the way Americans live and the way Americans organize themselves, and there will be you know another chapter to come? Um, well, there there are many worrisome things, and uh, we've talked about them. We've talked about the uh, empty high-rise condos in in Manhattan and uh, and San Francisco. That's not good, and we've talked about uh, mom and pop uh, businesses having to leave right. uh, Greenwich Village or the East Village or parts of Boston. That's not a good thing either. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, is it a good thing that the center that, that central cities are safer, more vibrant? more interesting and, and more attractive than they were 20 years ago. Of course that's a good thing. To say that because gentrification has downsides, which it obviously does, that the whole idea of reclaiming central cities is, is not a good thing, I think that's very short-sighted. Alan Ehrenholt is a senior editor at Governing Magazine. He's also author of The Great Inversion and the Future of the American City, among other books. Alan, thanks for being here. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We've got links for you on our website if you want to read more about foreign money flowing into high-end U.S. real estate, including some fascinating stuff from the New York Times on shell companies, which let foreign buyers make their purchases secretly. 
and these companies are helping to remake American cities. The links are at innovationhub.org.